We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly chess interview show where we talk with accomplished chess players, authors, and personalities about their lives, their careers, and how to improve at chess. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters and by Chessable.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the November 2020 edition of Perpetual Chess, Chess Books Recaptured, although it may be early December by the time we pump this out. We'll see. Uh, For listeners who haven't heard one of these monthly breaks from an interview format before, what we like to do is talk about a classic chess book or a favorite chess book. We've done about 10 of these so far, and it's a lot of fun. Uh, It's a break from interviewing someone, a chance to really deconstruct a chess book and help listeners figure out whether a particular book is worth their time. Maybe if you already read it, help you reminisce fondly about a few key points from it. Or if you haven't read it, and even if you're not going to read it, you can at least pick up a few highlights uh, from the book. And there are plenty of highlights in this book, which is, of course, Improve Your Chess Now, by Grandmaster Jonathan Tisdall. And each month we welcome a different guest co-host. And this month 
Uh, my guest co-host is quite a strong player. He is a FIDE master, 2300 plus in FIDE, a USCF senior master, 2400 plus, an original life master. I barely know what that is, but I think it means 300 games played over 2200 USCF. He's from Houston, Texas. Um, he's, he's won various titles, especially as a scholastic player, Texas high school championship three times, uh, Texas collegiate champion. And we know about uh, college chess in Texas. That's no joke. Um, uh, while an undergrad at the University of Texas, Alex received, um, oh, sorry, he, he won the 2018 Houston Chess Festival while an undergrad at the University of Texas. And he received his master's in accounting, then pursued his CPA, um, then his MBA. Um, and he has worked at Fortune 500 companies and private companies, and he's now working at Sologen, a venture capital-backed startup in the green chemical space that creates chemicals through innovative processes using enzymes, greatly reducing the carbon footprint. As you guys know, I'm just speaking off the cuff here. No, just kidding. These are, these are the notes prepared by our guest, Alex, who, as you can see, is eminently qualified to come discuss this book. So Alex, FM Alex Trua, how are you? Hi, Ben. Uh, thanks for having me. Super excited to be on the podcast. I have a little correction. You said uh, 2018 Houston Chess Festival made it sound like I won it while I was in college. This was as an adult. Some I knew the, I was the, screwing that up somehow. Uh, the I rare apologize. like uh, adult tournament that, you know, against a uh, tough competition that you get to win sometimes. Um, yeah, so th thanks for having me. And uh, we're going to be talking about Improve Your Chess Now by Jonathan Tisdall. Um, I, think, I think it's going to be a really good conversation. Uh, really enjoyed it. I selected this book because, uh, I, you know, I had several that we were talking about. And this is the one I had the most pages flagged on. And that I've used some with students, and I think is a great resource that I haven't seen covered too much other places. Um, also, it's, what do you think about the title? It's a very uh, promising title. Yeah, it's a good title. I mean, I, I like. Yeah, I'm surprised it wasn't taken to be honest, because it's so succinct and to the point. Um, and I do think <laughs> I think it's a, a truthful title. It will help you improve your chess. Let's not bury the lead here. I mean, there's. Um, it's not a long book. It's you know probably 200 pages, but it's uh, packed with useful tidbits. Um, and like you, Alex, I'm a, a longtime fan of this book. In fact, uh, people who listen every week will definitely have heard me talk about it. A uh, friend of the show, Christopher Shabri, has also mentioned it. Um, when when Jerry Wells and I did the Blindfold Chess, the book recap, we talked about it because we'll be talking about the section where Grandmaster Tisdall um, kind of uh, presents little blindfold puzzles. So I am definitely a big fan of this book. Um, it was It's originally from Cadigan Press, which is now Everyman Chess. Uh, it was published in the late 1990s, um, but it's still widely available at a reasonable price. Uh, we would apply the caveat that as far as I can gather, there's still no Kindle or ebook format. So you've got to keep it real with the actual book um, if you want it. Um, so Alex, did, what did you know about Grandmaster Tisdall or do you remember how this book initially crossed your radar? I don't know anything about, uh, Grandmaster Tisdale. Um, I kind of came across the book. I think someone mentioned Stepping Stone somewhere. I read it somewhere and then I went and looked it up and, I, and then I went ahead and bought the book. I wish I would have read it sooner. I think, uh, you know, there's definitely a target audience we'll get to in a minute. That I think this was really helpful 
uh, for when you're when you're looking for ways to improve and, and really how to think about chess, not just you know, what to study, but how to think and what your mind should be walking through. And I have always preferred books, so uh, I'm happy to, to have a, a paperback edition that I read from. You prefer books to ebooks, you're saying? Yes, yes. I, I kind of grew up at the age that was in between. I think all the kids today are probably all digital, electronic natives and, and on the computer learning chess, but I was kind of in between. So all the people before me used to read the you know, chess informants. Uh, read through and play the games, and I was kind of right at the end where they where I would get a copy of it and read through it, and uh, then everyone more, seemed to switch over all of a sudden to to digital. And I actually didn't start using a computer for chess until I was like eighteen or nineteen, so I kind of missed it in the, all my scholastic days. Wow, yeah, and we should mention, Alex, you're a relatively young man. How old are you? I'm thirty two, and I'll be thirty three in, in another month and a half. Okay, yeah, and the father of an eleven-month-old daughter. So, first, as as I mentioned before we're recording, congratulations, um, welcome to the this uh, amazing club. And um, and I also, of course, that means I feel like I need to give extra special thanks for you donating this time because that first year, uh, one can often be quite sleep deprived. So I'm all the more appreciative that you're able to pitch in and help out with this project. Yes, it's it's been exciting having a little baby girl uh, run around and. Uh, you know, first child for me, uh, first of a couple we're hoping, and uh, you know it was fun to uh, to have something to read and uh, look forward to. Excellent, yeah. And for a little bit more color about Jonathan Tisdall, um, I probably didn't. I first bought this book in the early two thousands, I'm guessing, and I've got a bit of a checkered history with it. Um, the first time I had it, I, I had the book. I loved it. You know, I've mentioned before, the, the general catalog was a lot more limited in chess books and chess education generally that day uh, in those days, obviously, with uh, not as much digital stuff being available. And there wasn't that much written in sort of a, um, an accessible style. And, you know, Jonathan Tisdall is a pretty smart guy. So, you know, you might need to look up a, the definitions of a couple words or two, but it's still nonetheless written conversationally and in a self-effacing style, dis despite being quite instructive. So the book was really resonating with me, but this was the early 2000s and there were no eBooks. And even then I wanted eBooks, unlike you, Alex. So I was reading it on the book and I had a Palm Pilot. So for kids who don't know what a Palm Pilot is, it's it was like a little handheld thing that came with a, a stylus, a pointer, um, where you could have a chess app and play through the moves. So since I'm, you know, not reading every book blindfold and didn't want to have a um, a uh, chess set on the plane, not even a, a portable one, that was how I was reading his book. And lo and behold, I left it on the plane and I was crushed. I was left the Palm Pilot too, by the way. I tucked the Palm Pilot in the book and left them both on the plane. And I was crushed and I had to go through the phases of grief because even though it wasn't like an economic hardship or something, I didn't really want to buy the same book twice. But ultimately, I did buy the same book twice. And then that one, it's an amazing book. But I, I don't know if this has happened to you, Alex, but my book fell apart. It was in like 12 different chunks of papers. The paper fell from the binding and I had to get another one at some point. I think that was 
significantly later. And now, so shout out Mr. Tisdo. I have a feeling since he's quite active on Twitter, he might listen to this when he gets tagged. So hello, Grandmaster Twitter uh, Tisdo. I'll have you know I bought three of this book. So I'm doing my part in addition to promoting it here on this here podcast. Um, how has your how's your physical book holding up? Are you still on your first copy, Alex? Yep, first copy. Uh, I've had other books fall apart. This one, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't focus too much on, I guess, the bindings or I never get hardcover. I always get paperback. The text is very readable. Uh, you know, it algebraic notation. Sometimes with the older books, uh, at some point they all switched over from the. Uh, old notation system, which uh, I was watching Netflix, Queen's Gambit, and they're all talking old notation. <laughs> right, uh, yeah. But uh, so so th this book, you know, pretty good format. Um, not Again, not too big of a book. You know, really, I, I actually really appreciate that. I think some people tend to pad their books, but I think this one, you know, e every page is worthwhile. Yeah, agreed. And just for a little bit more about Grandmaster Tisdall, born in 1958 in Buffalo, New York, um, works as a freelance journalist. He's an American citizen by origin, uh, later lived in Ireland, and now he lives in Norway. He was actually Norwegian chess champion in 1987, 1991, and 1995. Um, these days, there's a there's another strong chess player in Norway. Um, he's an active chess writer, active on chess Twitter. He does some translating um, from Norwegian to English. Um, he also co-wrote the book Five Crowns, co-authored with, with GM Yasser Sarawan, um, an another world championship book that I definitely recommend. Um, and he has long said um, on Twitter that he's working on another improvement book. So I think it's been like 10 years in the making, and we, we look forward to it whenever it comes out. Yeah, um, my copy of the book has a note at the, in his bio here that says he was John Spielman's second in the world championship Canada's matches. Wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, he's yeah. got he's obviously pretty well connected amongst the, you know, the grandmasters of his generation in particular and of course Norway is not a bad place to be in terms of being connected with the modern generation. He did an amazing recent interview with Magnus Carlsen that was published I think in some sort of Norwegian uh, I believe it was a chess publication and then uh, US Chess reprinted it. Um and uh, I, for those of you who didn't come across that interview, I'll link to it and definitely recommend you check it out. So yeah, I mean, his, uh, you know, his, his access and his, his, uh, ability to, um, you know, talk to these great stars and like, obviously understand chess on a pretty high level too is, is quite noteworthy. And he's covered, he covered the 2018 world championship for chess.com. Um, he wrote some columns for them. I would have liked for him to write even more. So, um, enough gushing about Grandmaster Tisdall, but suffice to say that, uh, we are fans of his work and this book is a big part of the, the reason why. Um, so for anyone listening, I do think it's always important to sort of set realistic expectations for um, what level player uh, might benefit most from this book. So what do you think, Alex? I think, uh, you know, we were chatting a little bit before, maybe a bit of a difference of opinion somewhat. Um, that reading the book, it kind of says that it's good for anyone who has some experience. The book specifically kind of says that in the introduction, um, which usually means like a club player or more experienced player or, or an improving youngster, maybe 1,400 to 2,000 um, is kind of what I took from that. I like to kind of assign the rating number to give people a good idea. And however, you know, I think I read this book, I was already a chess master. 
Like, right. I was yeah, I would, I would absolutely go over on the 2000. And I think I would also take the over on the 1400. For me, it's more like 1800 to 2300, something like that. Um, and that's not to say if you're lower rated and you're thinking about getting the book, there was actually a thread on the Facebook chess collectors uh, forum on Facebook recently. Someone was asking, like, if I'm a 1400 level player, can I benefit from a 2000 level book? Um, and I think this is actually, in my opinion, maybe not in Alex's opinion, um, I think this is a good case study. And the answer to me is yes, uh, there's just the question of opportunity cost, as always, because maybe you would benefit more from something where, you know, 50% of it or whatever percent of it isn't over your head. But I will say for listeners, what I like about this book is it's the calculation stuff that I think... Um, players on the lower rated end of the spectrum might find challenging to keep track of. And there might be a few things that Grandmaster Tisdall takes for granted in his abilities, even though he's self-effacing, he's also strong. Um, so I think the calculation stuff could be challenging, but there's enough sort of witty aphorisms and self-reflection um, and uh, pithy quotes you know, the stuff that a lot of us chess bibliophiles love. There's enough of that in there and enough of it provides useful nuggets where, you know, it's definitely useful for any rating. It's just if you're really going to go through the book and play through all the games and try to, like, pick up everything that uh, Grandmaster Tizzle's trying to impart, then I think it's best if you're, you know, maybe make it a, a reward for when you get to 1800 or something like that. Yeah, that, that's an inter interesting, I, I kind of think, like to me, I, I don't know if you get 100% out of every book or that you should get 100% um, retention or absorption from it. So I kind of, you know, if there were a young player or even an adult, I think an adult maybe of any age, maybe just have from virtue of having more experience usually might understand, because to me there's something about the pain of losing enough games or frustration of yeah. not knowing what to do um, that... You know, I think the audience, um, at, at maybe the meat, it, meat where you're going to get the most of it is probably, I don't know, maybe 1,700 to 2,100. But like when I read a book today, I I never expect a book to be written for me, basically, uh, given my experience in chess. But if there's anything really valuable to pick up, like to me, if I read a book and I pick up one really good thing, then that book is worthwhile. And that's why I kind of think it could apply to a lot of people. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And that's generally my philosophy, like even outside of chess books, like books are the greatest bargain in the world. When you think about the number of hours that, you know, brilliant people are are putting into um, the book to share like the absolute, I mean, at least in a perfect world, sort of, you know, the absolute cream of the crop in terms of like the wisdom they've acquired about whatever the topic is about. So to me to pay like 15 bucks or something, you know, for something like that, or 20 or 25 or whatever it may be is just like an absolute steal, which is, you know, this is I, I've already done this rant, so I won't go too yeah. long. But but that's why it frustrates me immensely when people just download PDFs without thought, because it's like, you know, it's it's not expensive in the grand scheme of things. And if you know, it's one of the most efficient ways to improve. And, and you know, maybe there are certain chapters. Actually, also in the intro, he kind of writes that I kind of want everyone to read chapters one and two. But the rest, it's kind of like an encyclopedia or a choose your own adventure. You know, if you want to learn about it, then read these other chapters. You don't have to read them in any order. Maybe, you know, for maybe someone lower, they might ignore some of the ones that they find too difficult. Um, you know, I kind of think the value of the pieces, and we can go through the list of the chapters, or some of them I think apply 
to just about everybody or, you know, playing bad positions. Uh, as a chess player, probably at least like half your games, you got a bad position sometimes. Yeah, yeah, it's unavoidable. And and yeah, let's get into uh, what the chapters are. But first, Alex, let's take a break and hear from our friends at Chessable. If you are enjoying this discussion and the ideas that Grandmaster Tisdall presents and that we are sharing, then you might enjoy a couple courses in particular from chessable.com. One is the Checkmate Patterns Manual by I am John Bartholomew and Crafty Raff. Great way to learn all the classic checkmates, see them in various permutations, and remember them using Chessable's patented Move Trainer technology. And the other is the visualized set of courses by Benedictine. I'm a big fan of these. They show you a puzzle and then give you like two or three more moves or however many more moves, and then you have to find the correct move in that position in the future. So you really learn to think ahead, really learn to do the work. And if you want to improve your visual visualization skills. There is no substitute for doing the work. I have learned that lesson the hard way. So all of these things are of course available on chessable.com. So go to their site and please have a look around. Let's get back to the book recap. And we are back. So we're going to break down the chapter titles for you guys and ladies a little bit, just so that you have a sort of sense of what you're getting. Alex has already alluded to a couple of the chapter titles. And like Alex, uh, the first two chapters really made a mark. Like I've, um, I've read this book a lot, but it's not one I've read to cover to cover that many times. It's a book I like to sort of pick up and thumb through. Um, so anyway, here are the chapter titles. Number one, the fabled tree of analysis, which we'll discuss. Number two, blindfold chess and stepping stone diagrams. Number three, the art of playing bad positions. Number four, pattern training and other useful exercises. Number five, the value of the pieces. And number six, wisdom and advice. And then there's two appendices. Appendix one is mating patterns and appendix two is common tactical themes. Um, and one nice feature about this book is there's um, there's little summaries with bullet points at the end of each chapter, um, which is always nice to um, to uh, just sort of if you're trying to remember what something's about or just to reinforce what you've learned, it's a nice touch. Um, do you have a favorite chapter, Alex? I, I kind of like the art of playing bad positions um, just because I've played a lot of games and I've worked with a lot of students and that is one of the hardest things I think for a chess player to really come to grips with because you're going to get bad positions and you and really strong players learn how to how to fight and both in a sense of strong moves like maybe what like you know playing more like an engine or playing defense but also psychologically bad positions are very interesting to me in a way um how you handle those positions and how you complicate tasks for your opponent and, and change around um and and it's just a very hard skill and not a lot of literature this was the first time first book i ever seen it mentioned how to play bad positions um and i think there was uh the chess swindler recently was the other book i've seen mention it but really not covered very often so for that reason i, I might pick that as a favorite chapter although i liked all of them was that the David Smerdin chess swindler book? Yes. So what, what, people have been raving about that book. What do you think of it, Alex? It's it's good. I def I enjoyed reading it. Um, he he had sent in uh, like a 
uh, a note out to everyone. The Chess World kind of and said if anybody had any games, I actually sent him in uh, like one or two games, and he one of my games is in the book. Oh, nice. <laughs> so uh, when I saw that, I took a picture, sent it to to my friends and family. So look, I'm I'm in the book now. But uh, it, it's good. I I think it. Uh, I think they talk about bad positions a little bit differently. Um, there's there's definitely like a lot to be explored there, um, and 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 he Smurden goes into some, has a different point of view a little bit on on how he approaches bad positions, um, and 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 I think the swindle is a little to me. There's a difference between playing a bad position and swindling. Uh, swindling to me is more of more of like stealing something or tricky, more trickery involved to me on swindling. Whereas I think you can play a bad position and not swindle, if that makes any sense. Okay. Yeah. I've only read a teeny bit of it. They knew in chess at some point did one of their ebook specials on it for 10 bucks and mm-hmm. people have been raving about it. So I picked it up, but I've been so busy reading books actually for people I'm interviewing and for the book recaps that I haven't gotten a chance to dig into much, although I am a fan of Grandmaster uh, Smurden generally. Um, but bringing it back to improve your chest now, as we like to do, I'm going to um, read you the first few paragraphs of the book just to give you guys a flavor for what you might be signing up for. So he does the thing where he has little quotes from people outside of chess. Um, so he opens with a quote that says, seeing much, suffering much, and studying much are the three pillars of learning. From And that's a quote from Benjamin Disraeli. Uh, and then the, the heading, Who Am I and What Is This Book About? Jonathan then writes, I can clearly remember the first time I read the fairly cliched description of someone as a player with, quotes a, a promising future behind him. I appreciated the witticism so much that it may have subconsciously influenced what looked like a bright chess career. In any event, the shoe soon fit. And he was around 39 at the time he wrote this, by the way. Moving on to another well-worn expression, those who cannot do teach, we can find part of the justification behind this book. When a player insists on trying to make his way in the chess world despite obstacles and handicaps, teaching is often the haven he seeks. Studying the games and careers of great players offers obvious advantages, but in many ways their trials are far removed from the sufferings of other mortals. A diary of upwardly spiraling success punctuated by declarations that Grandmaster X is now out to get me can make fascinating reading. On the other hand, the more mundane scenario of erratic results, blown wins, and painful setbacks contains, I think, more fertile ground for cultivating material suited for improving one's game. This book is a manual for players facing problems in the development of their skills, i.e. most people. I will try to explain what goes on when experienced players are thinking or when experienced players are thinking or what should go on. There's a lot of psychology and philosophy here. Although such serious words are not considered ideal when finding a title for a book, I hope that they will in fact make this book instructive in a less conventional way. In the course of a long and sporadically encouraging career, I have given a lot of thought to various methods of improvement. This book is a selection of various ideas, both my own and those of others. So excellent introduction. Uh, sets the scene nicely and I think sort of gives you an idea what you're what you're getting into um, any any observations from uh, that lengthy reading Alex uh, there was a sentence in there that said there's a lot of psychology and philosophy here and actually that's actually a good way to see how this book is somewhat different than a lot of other books 
in it really does address kind of like I said how to think and what to think about instead of just you, you know um, the moves or a specific tactical pattern. It's not really about giving you the the patterns to memorize. It's more of how almost like learning how to learn chess um, in a way, kind of meta. Yeah, I agree. It's and um, it's the spiritual brother to me, at least in in that sense, to a book that came after it, and another one, not coincidentally, of my favorite chess books, the Seven Deadly Chess Sins by uh, Grandmaster Jonathan Rousen. Have you have you read that one, Alex? I have read that one. Did you? Uh, that one that one's a, a good deal longer than this one. I remember thinking, and I like the writing in this book. I like the prose. You can tell he's kind of got to me. You can tell he's a writer. Um, by the way he's written his book that the prose is, is is sometimes you know more subtle or at a higher level than maybe standard writing uh, or standard chess material so I, I thought that also helped to elevate the book yeah i i like them both um quite quite a lot um uh okay so let's get to where we're, we'd like to discuss the two first chapters since grandmaster tisdale himself uh concedes or says that those are the two most important. Although I really, in in reading the chapter titles, I mean, I really there's something to like about all the chapters. Um, I would say my my least favorite is uh, the pattern training and other useful exercises. But I really like all the other chapters: the art of playing bad positions, the two we're about to talk about, the value of the pieces, and of course, with the philosophical wisdom and advice. Um, but let's dig into the tree of analysis first, because this kind of builds upon um, my uh, uh, Perpetual Chess's prior book recap with the aforementioned National Master in Cognitive Science, Christopher Chabri, when we discussed Think Like a Grandmaster um, and uh, Grandmaster Tisdall. And this was, you know, again, late 1990s that this book came out. Uh, I feel like at that time, um, Think Like a Grandmaster was held in maybe even a higher regard than it is now. I mean, it's obviously still considered a classic, but now there have been so many books after it and so much time has gone by that it's not unusual to hear people say you should read something more modern, whereas then I felt like it was sort of a, a sacred cow. Um, what did you think of what he had to say about uh, Think Like a GM, Alex? I've never read Think Like a Grandmaster. Um, so my experience of that book is mostly through this book. Okay, interesting. Um, so I, I, I really liked it. I found it related to my personal experience about how I have thought and improved my thinking. Um, he does a really good job explaining you know, how to calculate and visualize these first two chapters. Um, that, that chess players you know, do not really look at one variation. Because I think the way the tree is explained, which I also appreciate that um, him kind of explaining that book and, and why and what he saw a bit different. Okay, we uh, should, but, sorry to hop yeah. in, but we should explain the tree of analysis before before we go any further for anyone who, who's not familiar with it. Um, I can do the honors or you can, it's up to you. Uh, I'll give you my understanding okay. um, of it. And the, the tree of analysis is that you analyze a move. You find you first try to find the most, uh, I guess the most forcing move and you analyze it. And then you analyze the most forcing move to that and keep analyzing it. But as you analyze, there could be more than one forcing move. So it starts to branch out, and that becomes the tree. And the recommended treatment to handle this tree of analysis is to go down each path one at a time and to go in deep enough and make an assessment. And then once you've you know 
gotten this assessment, you hop to the next branch and you go all the way down. And since you have your first assessment and it's ironclad, you say, I know that, you know, let's say white is better. Uh, and then the next variation you say, oh, this one's equal. And the next one you say, you know, white is even better than it was in the very first variation. And you just keep going down until you get the highest ranked branch. And that's the one you pursue. Is that a, is that a fair um, yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, that's basically how I would have described it. Yeah, so very comprehensive, very labor intensive over the board. Um, and I would go so far, by the way, to say it's sort of the central thesis of Think Like a Grandmaster. And um, uh, Grandmaster Tisdale dropped an interesting tidbit uh, in one of his footnotes where he said that he, her, he, he said Bronstein, you know, famous legendary Grandmaster David Bronstein, uh, who wrote or co-wrote or contributed to Zurich 1953, uh, certainly is the listed author, depending on who you believe. But he said that Bronstein said that the book was generally considered um, in the Soviet Union as more of a Soviet compendium than just a book of Kotov. So it's sort of like the, the accumulated wisdom of the um, Soviet chess system. Now, he didn't give attribution for that quote, so I am curious where it came from. Certainly, I trust Grandmaster Tisdall, but I would have liked to have known um, like where Bronstein said that just to kind of flesh that out. But in any event, so that sort of shows how central sort of the, the dogma was at the time. And Tisdall gives his own perspective on the tree of analysis, which first of all, he tells the joke and there's lots of sort of jokes sprinkled in, but of uh, another, uh, you know, um, I believe uh, he was a grandmaster, Anatoly Lane, um, said, I don't think like a tree, contra Kotov's writing, like making making a joke that um, that it is that people don't really think that way, which has been a often levied criticism of the tree of analysis. And for that reason, in this book, Tisdall kind of advocates a um, truncated version where he says you should really focus on one line, really try to move forward rather than sideways, rather than um, evaluating every possible alternative. And only deal with what we would call the branches of the tree um, when unavoidable. Um, so I don't know. Do you feel like it impacted your calculation, Alex? Or do you have any other reflections on this whole tree of analysis dissection? Yeah, and I, and I read it also that you kind of decide what the critical variation, because another criticism of the tree of analysis, especially for like maybe non-master type players, is how do you decide which moves are the important ones? Right. Um, you know, and and uh, to look at a variation, pick one that you deem to be critical, and go as great a depth as as you can. Um, and then once you've done that, you can you, you see what you know really understand. You know, this is where I found kind of a breakthrough in my chest, and it was wasn't from this book, but it is this piece of advice: is to understand a bit why things are working or what the important. Uh, pieces are why things are not working and that a tactic isn't just like okay i moved my bishop and he moves his knight it's more like okay i can see that his king is weak because his pawn cover is off you know oh and if i could get my a certain piece in there and if i could do it with tempo and you can kind of use those sort of themes uh, not necessarily one critical variation but take the learnings from what you determine the critical variation and keep trying to improve and you, and you might start seeing more and more things until you get to the right variation and say, okay, I need to use these factors. And then the only way this would work is if it was this order. And then you'll see the, the best move. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I agree that it, it can be challenging or perhaps even overwhelming for a club level player. I mean, think like a grandmaster in particular, but even the examples in this book are, are, are you know, they're reasonably challenging, I think. Um, but I do, I do feel like it was a step in the right direction. I mean, I think the, the tree of analysis thing is just a way to, um, um, it's, it's not very practical. Yeah. Also in my opinion, like, you know, we play, like, I think Jacob Aggard, I've seen him mention that chess is a game of, you know, making decisions on limited time. Yeah. Right. And, uh, the tree of analysis is not practical as well because, you know, you start the game, you've got what, like 20 moves, the very first move. Right. So then from there it just is a multiple, you know, exponential curve. Um, which you know obviously overwhelms so quickly um, our, our, our mental ability to think, and, and we can't necessarily try to think like computers. I mean, a lot of computers, you know, used to. I think they think a little. They still think that way, and in, in better ways. But especially in the past, would think that brute force sort of method that we really as humans can't copy entirely. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, so let's dig into the stepping stones uh, again. We've we mentioned it a little earlier here on this podcast, and I, I've referenced it many times on the podcast because um, it's all about playing, uh, learning to visualize. And Grandmaster Tisdall writes, uh, I believe he was, I, the book was published probably when he was 39. So definitely in his late 30s when um, when he wrote this book. And he wrote at the time that, he's, that he was seeing a degradation in his calculation skills as he aged. And that was part of his motivation for writing the book and also part of his motivation for actively working on his calculation, which he makes it sound like he kind of took for granted um, uh, before then. So he lays out this idea in terms of trying to learn to play blindfold or trying to improve playing blindfold, where you should use what are called stepping stones. And how would you explain stepping stones, Alex? Uh, I think one way he kind of mentions in the book is when you're reading a chess book, we often have stepping stones. And, and to him, stepping stones are positions basically from which you calculate further. And for instance, we all have maybe the initial chess position. That's like everyone's stepping stone, right? If I say E4, everybody in their head, um, I think with some experience, will be able to move the king pawn two squares, right? Um, and that, that very first position is a stepping stone. The initial chess position is a stepping stone. But uh, the key with the stepping stones, I guess, plural, is that you kind of start with whatever position you have on the board. And you calculate as far as you can. But what happens mentally is you get a little hazy, right? Like maybe the uh, more advanced you are, you know, I'm sure Magnus Carlsen can probably see crystal clarity pretty much no matter how many moves he goes, I, I, I bet. But for the for the some of us, uh, for the rest of us, play however many moves you can, and then it starts to get pretty fuzzy, right? And what he recommends is kind of refocusing your mind and kind of taking a a picture, um, and like a a negative or a copy in your mind, and, and and kind of engraving it in your head, and kind of remembering where all the pieces are, where the pawns are. Pawns are the trickiest for me personally, actually. Uh, but but remember where the pawns pieces are. And once you've locked in that position, try to use that position to calculate from. So that's that's your stepping part. You've, you know, you're using it to go further. So once it starts to get a little fuzzy, try to lock in all the pieces and pawns, and then calculate further. And that's just a technique, you know, 
to to help you calculate far beyond the initial position. And whenever you get hazy, try to snap a, a you know like a Polaroid. Um, you know, we're talking old technology today, yeah, yeah, yeah. on pilots and Polaroids. <laughs> but uh, take a take a snapshot there in your head, lock it all in, and then try to calculate some more. And I, I mean, I think that makes perfect sense. I mean, what are your thoughts on that technique? And uh, Ben, have you been using it? I, I haven't done, I really need to do some blindfold training, to be honest, as I talked about um, with, uh, with Jerry Wells. Um, I think I'm weak at blindfold relative to my general rating. Um, and this is a book that certainly I've come back to a couple times when I'm like, all right, I'm going to get serious about blindfold. But um, I just, I haven't invested the time yet um, in, in what limited um, training I've done in blindfold, I have found it to be a useful construction construction. And hearing you talk about it, actually, what it made me think of Alex is like, it's just like a diagram in a chess book. You know, if, yep. you're, if you're play, if you're sitting back reading through a book and not don't have your set out, you're just trying to keep track of the position. It's very helpful to have the diagrams like, you know, it's exactly that it's meant it's a mental diagram for yourself to explore different variations. I, I don't I don't know if I even think of it. I mean, I guess it is blindfold, but I just think of it as a thinking technique like I could think of games I've played where it was very tactical and I would take time and sometimes you know used to be I guess everything now is rapid chess especially online but if you were playing a game two hours 40 moves you know um, and then one hour sudden death you had enough time that you could spend 30 minutes on a position and and in some of those positions I can kind of see myself taking a mental photos of certain positions and working through the variations and going deeper. Um, so I think it's just a thinking technique, not necessarily restricted to, to blindfold, but in any game of chess you play that requires a um, good amount of calculation. Yeah. Yeah. And I was okay as an, you know, when I was playing competing the most, I was pretty decent uh, as an over the board calculator. There was something about the competition that kind of brought it out of me. But I think from a, from a training perspective, I could definitely use some work, whether it be, um, as you say, whether it be blindfold or just general calculation, it's it's very useful advice. And then, of course, as we've alluded to on the show and um, previous conversations, um, he provides a few blindfold puzzles. He he um, gives a handful of games where he just tells you the twelve moves, and then he says, "Okay, you know why why is why is black." black to play and win in that position up to the 12th move. Similarly to what I've done on a few of the uh, blindfold puzzles at the end of the show, which by the way, we won't have one this month. I apologize, listeners. Um, so um, yeah, it's quite, quite useful. And so I'm imagining you were halfway decent at blindfold already by the time you read this, Alex, did you do any training in the wake of reading this or was it more like a general interest sort of thing? I, I do tactics. I try to do tactics every day. I'm not 100%, but that's probably like the one thing that if I feel like if I need to do some chess, it's like, well, at least do my tactics. That's good. Um, so I've always felt comfortable tactically. Um, I know there are some like super calculators out there. I, I kind of think, you know, these the, the top players, but even among the top players, there's some that I feel like have a reputation even just for calculation skills and i know they're at a whole nother level to me um but uh that, that, that's an area i always try to work on and the advice here is is helpful um it's, it's actually hard to find 
I find it hard to find puzzles appropriate. I do the Lee Chess mm-hmm. and Chess.com, do some of their puzzles. Um, but it, overall, it can get kind of hard. Uh, most chess material, you know, there's not probably not a huge audience for, like, chess players over 2,200. Uh, books, I mean, there's a little bit now. I mean, it used to be there was none. Right. Um, and so the calculation and stuff here, the puzzles, a lot of the puzzles I've done before were probably not hard enough for me to have to flex uh, the full stepping stone method um, on them. So I, I like the technique, and I, I can't think of too many criticisms of it, and it's been helpful. Um, it it kind of clarified. I mean, just you know, having someone describe how to do it, knowing that it's possible, makes it easier to do. Yeah, for sure. And I think just hearing his thoughts on it, again, this book, um, I think it's worth the price of admission for for any prospective reader, just just for the first two chapters alone, as uh, Grandmaster Tisdall says, and notwithstanding any comments I may have raised about like who it's the perfect book for, um, I do think Alex raised some good counterpoints in that like if you can get enough insights that are accessible enough that um, it, it's worthwhile for a lot of people. And these two chapters in particular, along with the last chapter, in my opinion, um, illustrate this. Um, another thing you'd highlighted, Alex, that you like about this book is uh, the the chess culture that he mentions. Could you could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, there's a lot of great um, classic games. Uh, I think there's uh, Zurich 1953, the Petrosian Exchange Sacrifice was in there. Uh, the, just like classic games, I kind of think everybody should know. Um, each, each chapter has a few games to illustrate the point um, of the chapter. Or, uh, you know, in each chapter kind of will have little subheadings and they'll usually be a game that I think was really illustrative. Uh, but having these like games and stories and sayings um, I think they help someone connect to the chess community and appreciate, um, really just appreciate the game, the art of it, the strategy of it, uh, maybe in ways they weren't thinking of before, and kind of the, the shared heritage of it. You know, chess is really a rich game, you know, been around, what, 1,500 years or so, although the modern incarnation is a little different than the original. But, you know, you could, players today can go back and look at games from you know, 500 years ago, and there's, you know, they played a little bit different style of chess. They weren't, didn't have all of our strategies developed, but um, throughout chess history, there are definitely games that, that I think to really appreciate chess, you should be aware of. Yeah, yeah, and he does have his share of classics. Um, also, a lot of his own games, coupled with uh, the obligatory self-effacing comment or two, at least one of which I'll be be sharing later. And to your point about the anecdotes, you know, the the chess culture, a couple stood out to me in the context of talking about blindfold chess and why he needed to work on um, his visualization. He tells the story of Grandmaster Alexander Beliavsky, uh, telling him that he goes through five days a game blindfolded on any rest day. So that's how you become a grandmaster. When, when... I, started, uh, I started trying to do that. Uh, I, I, do, I don't do it every day. It's just hard to find time every day to do chess. Yeah, well, maybe when you have the baby sleeping on your lap, Alex, you could do it. Yeah. That's that's impressive that you even tried, though. Um, Actually, what I did is um, I took a Post-it note. And I, what I did is he also mentions in there you should cover the other moves. Because if you don't cover the other moves, 
you will your eyes automatically reread the prior moves. Right. And so you don't it doesn't focus force you to focus as much and you just replay the moves in your head instead of really nailing the position. Yeah. So I took a post-it note and I folded it up and I took some scissors and cut a hole in the middle. And then I just slide over each move um, on a printed out game. Wow. And uh, I haven't I haven't been entirely consistent with it, but I've tried it and I actually thought it was helpful. That's some uh, Neil Bruce like um, ingenuity and dedication. <laughs> Shout out to Neil. Um, <laughs> good to hear. Um, an- another uh, story that I liked is um, where he's just talking about uh, Karpov's ability to to get in the kind of position that he likes to, to get people in the meat grinder. And he's just talking about how he was at the world championships in 1981 chatting with uh, grandmaster Kavalik about that. Um, you know, so th- this is a, a guy who's, um, you know, knows everyone in the chess world and has been covering these events. I mean, 1981, you know, even at the time of uh, the writing that was, uh, you know, 18 to 20 years before um, publication, and of course, um, you know, I'd love to interview. Yeah, that's, a, that's a really good point, Ben. Um, I didn't think about it. You know, now looking back, that's going to be 40 years, that reference. Yeah, kind of crazy. And and Grandmaster yeah. Tisdall, I mean, I don't have his birth year right in front of me, but he must have been around 20 at, <laughs> at the 1981 World Championship. <laughs> um, yeah. That, that, well, sorry, I ahead. love the, the references, though, for you know chess culture, because I noticed as I got more into chess, you would start recognizing names and recognizing what people are known for. And if you're at that level where you can appreciate it, I think you're a pretty strong chess player. Uh, not just world champions, uh, but other players. You know, Karpov, definitely everybody should know him um, and, and his style and his history. Um, but even, you know, I think Leboyevich has a couple games in here. Yeah, that, and, yeah. And if you if if you know Leboyevich and you think, oh man, what you know, great tactical player, this and that, you're probably already a, a player of a pretty good standard. Yeah, you at minimum know your history, but it's interesting to me how often that goes together with being a strong player. Like there there are kind of the outliers who are not necessarily that strong, but just made a conscious effort to learn as much history, including the styles as possible, but more often they come together. It's the people who put in the time that really can differentiate all these players. Right. Um, and, and especially when it's not like world champions, yeah. I feel like there's a lot of written about them. Um, but maybe close contenders, like if you knew about Geller or Gelfand or Korshnoi or Kamsky, you know, kind of like way up there, but not quite Ivanchuk. You know, um, th- then you're a really good player because that's the only reason you should know about them is because you've studied their games and you can appreciate um, what they what they're doing. Yeah, well said. And they're all geniuses in their own rights. I mean, there's so much to learn from even uh, these many people who never managed to win the world championship. Um, so you had also mentioned, Alex, that another thing you liked about this book was um, his his uh, use of aphorism. Yeah, he has something here where he notes that a lot of books um, don't mention aphorisms much, and aphorism just kind of a pithy observation that has a general truth um, in it. So I looked it up online, and you know, an example that was online was if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that in other games, um, like 
Shogi, I think he mentions. Maybe maybe Go. I've heard other players mention Go. I think I read once that Tony Miles um, studied some Go and it changed his, his chess approach a little. Um, that they, they learn through aphorisms because their game gets so complicated that they need like a rule of thumb a little bit, um, a general truth to, to guide their moves instead of analyzing every move, right? Like the tree of analysis is too much. I think Go maybe is even more complicated than, than chess. And probably Shogi's pretty similar. And at first he says that there he couldn't think of many, but then he thought about it and said, actually, there's probably a ton, right? And I think this is a really good idea and a great way to teach people. And to me, it's almost like you should learn the general strategies and rules, and then the masters really learn when they can break those rules. Uh, but just first you got to know the, the general strategies and rules to know when they can be broken. And some of them I could think of were like past pawns should be pushed. Um, and I don't know, Ben, if I, if I listed a saying, would you explain it to the viewers? Uh, I could try. Yeah. So what does past pawn should be pushed mean? <laughs> well, that one I could definitely handle. Um, that one, you know, in the end game, like when you, when you have a past pawn, you, you know, promoting it should be your highest priority, basically. I mean, it's pretty, pretty self-explanatory. Yeah, and when you don't know what to do, you just move the move the pawn forward, right? Don't just like mess around with other stuff. You're like, I got to pass pawn, I got to push it. You know, there's nothing else to do otherwise. Um, a knight on the rim is grim. I've heard this three ways: knight on the rim is grim, knight on the rim is dim, a knight on the rim deserves a trim. Oh wow! I even heard a knight on the side. I cannot abide. So <laughs> <laughs> don't know where that one came from. Um, <laughs> Which might be my personal favorite, but when you teach kids, you can't really use it because they're like, well, what does I can't abide mean? Um, but but, uh, but uh, anyway, um, and he raises the point when he's talking about these um, these aphorisms, like he, he at some point says um, someone should write a whole book about this topic, which I found interesting because, of course, you know, six or so years later came uh, Grandmaster John Watson's famous book, Secrets of Modern Chess Strategy which is all about both sort of the um, the um, aphorism and heuristics that we learn as up-and-coming chess players, but also he sort of laid out the thesis that the elite players know when to break it. And in, in my ex- break, uh, whatever rule is uh, given, you know, like Knights on the Rim or Grim or whatever. Um, and I've certainly noticed that in my teaching that I do feel like when I, when I work with club-level players, um, some sort of rule of thumb, in my experience, it it may be equally likely to get a player in trouble as to help them. Um, unfortunately, like I, I might be exaggerating a little bit, and of course, it would also depend on what the particular guideline. Oh, I, is. I got a good one. I got a perfect example. Don't bring your queen out early. Right. Right, and then you'll you'll sell someone that, and then they don't do it, and then they're like. Oh, you could take a pawn. You're like, but that brings my queen out. Right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, and there, you know, I mean, I've seen kids' games where, like, uh, there's a you know a bishop on g4 and a knight on f3, and the white has a castled king, and black plays bishop takes f3, and there's no like immediate firestorm, but they just won't recapture the piece on f3 because then they'll have doubled pawns and an open king. You know, and it's like, you know, it's it's good that you've learned that lesson, but it's not worth three points, the, the, the doubled pawn and the open king. Like there needs to be some other reason not to recapture. So, yeah. So. yeah I, I noticed that also um, 
that to me, chess is a game, you know, it is the making decisions under time constraints, but also a game of trade-offs. And some players, at some point, you learn how to make those trade-offs and what to make, but some people are just, you know, when you face weak opposition, you just get to do whatever you want. And so the kids sometimes just do whatever they want because it's like, well, you know, maybe he won't take me back. Right, or, yeah. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's all tricky business, but definitely good points uh, that he that he raises. Um, I've got one aphorism that took me a, a little bit of while to really appreciate um, that I had read from Petrosian. And Petrosian had said, pawns don't move backwards. And at first you hear that and you're like, uh, duh, right? Th- those are the rules of the game, right? Pawns don't move backwards. And, and then you think, why is the you know former world champion type player even saying such a thing, right? Um, but it, it really is saying that you know as you move your pawns forward, you're you're creating weaknesses as well in their wake as they move forward, and you, because your pawn can no longer control those squares, it doesn't move backwards. And also, if you play a lot of end games, you know sometimes you got to reserve your pawn moves um, for Zugzwang and, and those sort of situations where you need to to change your pawn formation. Yeah, and I think the the pawns never move backward thing is Sam Shanklin, if I'm not mistaken. I still haven't fully read uh, Small Steps to Giant Chess Improvement and its sequel, I am somewhat ashamed to admit, although I have acquired them like many other chess books. Um, but I believe it's a central thesis of that book. You kind of built a book around that idea that like don't take it for granted that it's the only piece that you know fundamentally alters, like irrevocably alters the... Uh, the characteristics of the position when you move it. So favorite instructive tidbits. I know this is the good stuff that all your listeners are waiting for. Um, do you have any standouts um, from, from your perspective, Alex? This is chock full. Like I said, I think like page for page, this might be the most instruction per page. Actually, I can think of many of many of the books that I've read outside of a puzzle book. Um, but I did like, he mentions saving and collecting games um, for yourself that like learning is an individual process. Like you can't just, you have to learn for yourself and, and save and collect things on your own. You can't just take it from someone else. It might not work for you. We learn differently or certain points may be more accessible or certain themes that you need to work on more. So to, to save and collect games and specifically maybe sort of pattern training for, for strategic positions. So, like, we do pattern training for tactics, and this would be, you know, forward pin, skewer, double attack, and all those sort of tactics. But uh, for strategic positions, so, like, an example it gives would be, let's say, you know, which I think is talked about a lot, minority attack. Um, but you could do this for every opening you play. Like, you know, if you played the Queen's Gambit declined, you could save Queen's Gambit declined positions. You play the King's Indian defense, certain themes or strategies in King's Indian positions, you know, you see a game, save it, and then go review it later and and learn the nuance, and that that can go on forever, and that's a great way to learn. I mean, I found once I learned my opening systems kind of like that, where the the back of my hand, I I felt, um, when I was a kid, I felt untouchable. Nice, yeah. Yeah, there there are so many um, good, good quotes in here. It was um, difficult to pick. And of course, we want to leave some for readers to discover on their own. But I liked one again, uh, vis-a-vis the topic of aging, where he quotes uh, 
He quotes uh, John Adams saying, old minds are like old horses. You must exercise if you wish to keep them in working order. Um, and then he tells this quote in the middle of one of his games where he's sort of um, making fun of himself. I mean, he might be self-effacing to a fault in this book. Um, he says, uh, I subsequently nominated this move, um, describing a move he made. This is in the middle of sort of a longer game annotation. I subsequently nominated this move for an Elmer Fudd Award in honor of the, speaking of older references, um, <laughs> in honor of the Huntsman eternally outwitted by Bugs Bunny. The explanation for this is the whole process behind this move reminds me of the classic cartoon routine. I'm seized by an irresistible desire to blow my opponent's head off. Then I proceed to use most of my time calculating and recalculating the variations associated with the sacrifice. I cannot make it work, but keep on trying. Finally, after listening to the frustrating clicks of the weapon refusing to fire, I perform the chess equivalent of pointing it at my face, looking down the barrel and pulling the trigger one more time with the usual result. And I could definitely relate to that. <laughs> I've, uh, yeah, I, I've um, done that exact routine many times. I don't know about you, Alex, but. Yeah, that, that's, that's funny. Elmer Fudd, another old one. We should write a chess book just full of old references for for old people. <laughs> yeah. Well, at least he did a nice explanation. So for any younger listeners, we don't have to explain it. Another quote that I enjoyed was relating to time pressure, where he begins with a quote from Winston Churchill, which he says, perfectionism is spelled P-A-R-A-L-Y-S-I-S, -S, meaning paralysis. Um, Time pressure addicts, and I have been one, don't be flattered by this statement. Perfectionism may occasionally be to blame, but more ignoble reasons are more common. In fact, don't be flattered at all. Perfectionism will not get you far as a player, especially unless you're one of those rare creatures that can produce something close to the goods. Perfectionism is something to keep you motivated, but should be left behind at the workshop when it's time to play. Too much attention to detail will certainly bring you time pressure and probably turn you into a teacher or an accountant. There are worse fates, but you should be warned. So, uh, yeah. I, I represent that. I represent <laughs> <that>. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that's a good one. Uh, he also mentions that he calls uh, handling of bad positions should be one of the cornerstones of effective technique. You're like, cornerstones? Like, that's, the you know pivotal for you to be a good chess player is having good technique at playing bad positions. Yeah. Yeah. So, so much good stuff. Um, and, and yeah, and I for bad to... positions, he says, uh, no relaxing, which I know I see that in people, they relax and everything falls apart. Um, save, the, save the cheap tricks. You're like, Oh, I'm losing anyway. Might as well try this one. Right. And then the cheapo makes it worse. And, uh, use some, use some imagination, some creativity. Yeah, so so much good stuff in there. Um, we'll we'll leave a few for uh, for readers to to discover on their own. So, um, what else, Alex? Let's see. I think we had a note here about favorite games. Ah, uh, uh, yeah. So the aforementioned for me, uh, Lubovic. <laughs> I'm gonna butcher his name, of course. Lubov Lubovich. Um, it's getting late here as we record. Um, he had an amazing game in the um, the value of the pieces chapter against uh, famous uh, Filipino grandmaster Evgeny Evgeny Otori, um, where 
uh, Tisdall says he seems to declare that the pieces are not worth what we think they are. And in the game, uh, there's a position where black has a bishop on G7 and the long diagonal is open and white has a knight on C3 and a rook on A1. And he just moves the knight and black can just take the rook. And yes, he's recapturing the bishop on A1, but there's no immediate dynamism in the position. It's just kind of a positional sacrifice for the dark squared bishop, but in sort of very brazen fashion. And then um, subsequently in the game, still down the exchange, I mean, he's built up some nice central pawns in the position, um, but he goes to an end game, just down an exchange and doesn't draw the end game, but wins the end game in instructive fashion. So it, it's, um, it's a really cool game and there's more of it, but that was the one that I highlighted. Um, yeah. And that's what I, um, when I say games and culture, like that's one that's like kind of cool, right? Like yeah. one worth knowing that you feel good, like having seen it. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, I mean, again, this game was played in 1975 these days with the way that like, uh, you know, Alpha Zero and Leela um, chuck material out the window. It, it might seem less less shocking to someone who's like played through a lot of games, but um, for it to have taken place, OK, to be fair, 45 years ago, um, yeah. then it's um, it, it's it's pretty cool to see. And I felt like the whole value of the pieces chapter generally was, was ahead of its time. Yeah. Um, that reminds me, I think Sonosco used to have a, a article series he write, he called it, um, old wine and new bottles. And it was like these ideas that we've seen before, they seem new, but you know, someone did it, uh, years before. Yeah. I think Mikhail Marin has a column of that name now. Oh, maybe think. that's Mikhail Marin. Maybe, uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, I also like that chapter a lot. I think that's another area that I've noticed in my experience people struggle with is that the value of the pieces is actually dynamic. You can't just say a bishop at knight or three, a rook is five, queen nine, pawn one. It really is dependent on the position, and you have to play the demands of the position. And uh, my favorite game was also in that chapter. Um, and I, I personally, this and this is an example, your example was an exchange sacrifice. Uh, my favorite was also an exchange sacrifice, um, which was a positional exchange sacrifice in a kind of Bononi-like structure. But instead of the e pawn on e4 and d5, it was a pawn on c4 and d5. And in in this game, uh, Polagayevsky Petrosian, Black plays rook takes bishop on e3. Uh, his rook on e8 takes on e3, and it's like again a pure exchange. There's no, there's no pawns. It's just like five for three, right? What you would think. And uh, in this position, black ends up having pretty easy play. Um, you know, it doesn't even feel like he's down anything. And in fact, white wanders a couple moves later. Um, and it surprises me because Polvagayevsky is another, first of all, if you know how to say his name, you're probably a good player, <laughs> right? Uh, but Polvagayevsky is a great player too, right? World championship contender many times over. Um, so to see that really left an impression on me. And uh, then a few pages later, there's another game, Kasparov versus Ulf Anderson. And Anderson plays the same exchange sack. Uh, he doesn't win, but he, he makes a draw against Kasparov, which, you know, pr pretty much a win in my book. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I, I'd i take it. Um, yeah, there's, yeah, that game is really cool. There's so many. And of course, as always, I'll link to link to uh, the, the chessgames.com uh, link of the game if you just want to quickly play through it. But more advisable would be to uh, 
to get the book and uh, check out what Grandmaster Tisdall has to say about it. Um, any other? Well, I did want to mention another improvement takeaway. Um, he, of course, like many others, talks about the importance of solving endgame studies. Um, he says because they require accurate calculation and most importantly, the intense search for absolute best moves for both sides. So you're not just looking for the best move for one side, but in order to solve to completion, you need to find the best move by the opponent. So of course, uh, I am Cyrus Lakdawalla recently discussed it on the show. Um, when he discussed his new book, his great new book, rewire your chest brain and many other players, um, of note have recommended that. Uh, I do think it's a bit of a challenge for uh, players maybe below 1600 to find uh, like a lot of endgame studies. Um, And it's, you know, your, your calculation can only go so far at that point, but um, definitely once you get over the 1600 level, um, so many of grandmasters just um, harp on how important a training tool it is. Were you an endgame study guy, Alex? I've done some, uh, some studies. I kind of, think like you should like read now they have so much more materials but like uh the yusupov quality chess yeah. uh, series books and maybe um the steps method like read those uh i think are great great ways to improve a lot and then maybe move on to studies um because i think if you've gotten through those books you're probably at a good level um where you can handle them because finding the, the defensive ideas or the counter moves is like so hard. Yeah. Uh, you got to be a imagination, you have visualization, resourcefulness. Um, you have to have a lot of familiarity. So um, I think it is good to do end game studies, but it may be advice for a slightly stronger um, player. Okay. Yeah. That's reasonable. Yeah. Certainly Cyrus, when I had him on the show said, you know, you better get used to getting them wrong <laughs> if you're if you're doing them, but at least make you know make a serious concerted yeah, effort. Yeah, no, I, I I try them and I do some. I do I, do, I like some of them, um, but you do get like a lot wrong. You're like, man, I just got my butt kicked. Yeah, uh, but it, once you get used to that, and you and then you start getting some, you feel kind of good. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, um, I have I have an improvement takeaway that I liked also, which was just to talk to yourself um, when you're playing, like. You know, uh, when I was a kid, I learned that uh, you should always have a plan and that it's something you can explain to your your grandma who's never played chess, right? And that doesn't mean, like, move my bishop here, but it's like, um, I want to, you know, attack the king or I want to win the end game or I want, you know, and then as you get better, your plans maybe get a little bit more sophisticated. Uh, but I think that's a great tidbit for anybody is, like, you should be talking to yourself and working through your plans. Yeah. Although not literally if your opponents across the board, I guess you could do it online. <laughs> yeah. you could uh, Nowadays. And then um, also that he's got that appendix and the appendix I actually thought was, was very nice um, where he's got all like the major checkmates. Uh, and he says, you should just have them like memorized cold um, that, you, and I actually found that that one did seem to help me in online uh, blitz and bullet. Because like sometimes you just have to like check somebody, checkmate somebody, right? You you don't have time to dilly dally. Um, you just gotta like know it, right? And um, I had a game once where I was playing an FM, and uh, we both like were not familiar with this checkmate, and I found it over the board. But had he been aware of it, he would have avoided it. And had I have known it, I wouldn't have had to sweat so hard to find it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I think that's that's a good piece of advice, and I would recommend everybody. 
uh, memorize those those patterns. Um, I think that one's especially applicable to the lower rated players. Okay, yeah, I, I I found the appendices to be like mildly out of place. Um, I didn't feel like they were really the same level as the rest of the material in the book, um, but it certainly can't hurt. I mean, it's free it's free material as far as I'm concerned. So, um, I yeah. but in my reading, I didn't use them that much. Yeah, I mean, I guess that would be a little bit quibble. I wish there were more of the appendix. Yeah, um, I like uh, the the checkmating patterns. I just like. Because that's another one where it's like there's a couple of unusual ones that you could spend so much time thinking, but if you knew them cold, you could use them and uh, very easily in your games. Um, but I mean, it's a, it's a really simple appendix, but I think it's like key kind of stuff. Um, and I would like to see maybe more as a to quibble would be uh, more about how online chess, computer analysis. Obviously, this was before um, that stuff was really good in the '90s. It kind of existed, but it wasn't like super good. Right. Um, I can remember like Fritz Five or something, and you're like, "This thing's ridiculous." Um, but and I did check one of his games with analysis. His assessment was mostly correct. I did find where his he missed a move, but it didn't it didn't change the assessment too much. But it was like, okay, um, I think it went from like slight advantage or something to just like equal. Not bad. Yeah. I mean, and there's always, you know, you throw these 3,500 engines on any older book and there's some sort of mistake. They're going to get dissected sometimes. There'll be mistakes. And yeah. I, I once read that uh, Joe Bava uh, liked to read old chess books and then look for the errors. Like that was like, he thought that would, uh, that's how he knew he was like really good and he could kind of, you know, find the errors in, in old like Rook End games and stuff like that. That's hardcore. That's funny. <laughs> He's kind of a hardcore guy, though. <laughs> He's been streaming a little bit. I don't know if you've caught any of it. I saw him on uh, Lee Chess. Yeah. Uh, which I think that's amazing. It's like, man, you know, in the 90s and early 2000s, you'd kill to see some of this stuff. Yeah, this is uh, Grandmaster Bader jo- Jobava. I'm probably mispronouncing his first name, but he's he's very entertaining. From, uh, definitely recommend. From uh, Georgia, the yeah. country. Yeah, and and, known uh, for he his some like, really great enterprise. I think he was up to twenty seven hundreds at one point when he was younger. Uh, very entertaining style. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, really unique openings and stuff. Um, yeah, and I don't have too many quibbles with the book either, other than the two I've already mentioned. Well, I'll add. So I'll add a third. But one, my books keep falling apart. Um, <laughs> so that, that's a that's a minor quibble and the lack of ebook. But the only other one was the. Uh, the blindfold chess chapter I thought was so good, but I would have I would have loved uh, you know twenty more miniature games with blindfold quizzes because he goes to great lengths to sort of lay out this theory and explain the idea behind it, but then it's actually pretty light on the actual number of puzzles in it. So I know some people might be working on books like that, and it would be good for an audiobook format. And I think I mentioned before, I think someone's even doing a podcast. Uh, playing through classic games in an audio format. Um, but, uh, and maybe uh, Grandmaster Tisdall will get it into the... Uh, the His next the, book or, yeah. or, or revised edition or yeah. anything like that. Whatever it may yeah. be. But overall, you know, definitely one of my favorite books and uh, rereading it did not uh, disabuse me of that notion. Um, would you say the same, Alex? Is it one of your favorites? Yeah. It, it kind of has been all the. I never reread books. I don't know if that's a weird thing that's only me, or if every chess player is like, 
I got too many books to read. No time yeah. to reread. <laughs> right. So this was one of the few experiences I've ever had preparing for this discussion, um, rereading a book and it, uh, or a chess book. And it, um, I found that I mostly, I feel like I retained it. Like to me, when I read a book, it almost becomes like a part of you. Um, and the points that I kind of remembered before were still there. Um, and, you know, I, not that much n- new for me on the second reading. I feel, you know, I try to read a book and kind of, kind of absorb everything in it and then move on to the next one. So, okay. uh, my second reading kind of left me with the same reading as the first and I really enjoyed it. And I kind of regret not reading it earlier in my chess career. Let's say when I was like 1600 to 2000, um, cause I think, there is like a, a change. There's like, you kind of change as a chess player and um, books like these and, and training tools can help you um, evolve your chess style and your understanding. Yeah. I don't know, Alex. I think that shows why, why you're such a strong player. Cause for me, when I reread a book, I remember some of the pros, but uh-huh. like, but like the puzzles, I don't necessarily remember. Often it'll be like, I'll, I'll have the feeling that I know I've seen the puzzle, like I recognize it, but I don't remember the answer. And like, maybe if I sit there for a couple of minutes, like, I mean, first of all, I'm trying to, <clears throat> excuse me, trying to solve it anyway, but also it's like the germ of the idea might occur to me sort of thing. But for me, um, uh, I need the spaced repetition, um, whether it be from uh, our friends at Chessable or just doing it old school with a book, which by the way, when you mentioned check, checkmate patterns, um, I did want to mention that, that the Chessable checkmate patterns manual is awesome for you know, a wide variety of levels because it does sort of similar thing where it shows you all the patterns in different permutations. Um, so that's good both for, for you know, students of a wide variety of levels. Um, so last but not least, Alex, um, we got to make a donation on your behalf and you made an excellent choice. Could you share it with our listeners? Yes. Uh, I selected leechess.org. I actually found out about Lee Chess through your podcast, uh, Ben. I, you know, it's hard for me to follow all the chess news that's going on. Um, I've playing on different services before, and I still kind of plan a couple. But um, LeeChess.org is, to me, like the Wikipedia of chess Yeah. in that it's, it's open source, it's free, it's a nonprofit website to, just for chess. It's, and it's very high quality. I find it um equal to or better sometimes than some of the other services um and it's it's a you know i think it helps the chess world having this great free resource to get people involved in the game um as well as it has all the tools as well um you know from opening explorer engine analysis um different time controls and uh the title to retitle a lot of title players on there um, which to me is just fantastic that, that they really have a great thriving community. So I selected them um, and they're a great nonprofit to me. Yeah, an excellent choice. I am a monthly contributor to both Wikipedia and Lee Chess, but I am happy to uh, kick in a little extra on your behalf. Yeah, and Lee Chess, I mean, I like, you know, of course, I, I know a lot of the people at um, all of the major chess sites and friendly with them. Um, but I also think there's great things about uh, all of the chess sites. But what I will say about Lee Chess is their actual playing interface is my favorite by far. It's just, um, 
it's just so clean. Um, and just the, the server seems so fast, which as you allude to Alex, like, because it's, um, a free site, that's, that's pretty impressive stuff. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I'll say I, uh, I ran like an ad tracker on it. Like there was a, uh, some web project where you could type in a website and see how they monitor you and leech us turned out great. Like they had very few or none. Yeah. Well, in the early days yeah. of perpetual chess, I interviewed Thibaut Duplessis. And yeah, I heard su- that interview very good. <laughs> Suffice to say, he's not a fan of ads. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that probably also makes it faster and, and more private. So, you know, m- more power to him. Yeah. Good for him. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't, li- <laughs> I couldn't live with the ideals that he does. I couldn't live so pure, <laughs> but it makes for a great chess website. So shout out to Thibaut and everyone else. I mean, I know it's a, it's a large team pitching in voluntarily. So it's really awesome. And uh, yeah, good, good, good site to support. Um, okay. So Alex, this has been awesome. Thank you for sharing your super strong player perspective on this reasonably advanced but very instructive to all book. Um, so how, if anyone is interested in reaching you, um, is that possible, Alex? Yeah. Well, uh, first Ben, th- thank you for having me. I've, you know, I've been excited about this discussion and I'm ha- happy to hear what, what people think of it and I hope they go out and buy this book and, uh, and improve now, uh, to reach me, you know, I'm kind of an amateur, so I don't, uh, not a professional, don't have like a website or anything like that. But I, I do like to have a couple students. Um, I just enjoy teaching and it's kind of a fun way for me to spend time. Um, so I, I think rather than give out my email, which I, you know, who knows, I'll, I'll just give out my leechess.org username, which is Hilama, H-I-G-H-L-A-M-A. And if you send me a message on there and, you, and you're interested in lessons, um, you can reach out to me. Yeah, great. And I've actually spotted you on the Lee Chess Coaches page too. Um, so if you guys scroll, you can find Alex. But of course, I'll uh, I'll I'll link to his uh, Lee Chess handle in the show description. And as you guys can tell, he knows his chess and would be um, an excellent hire if you're looking for some in, an individual coach. Um, all right. Well, so listeners, as I mentioned earlier, we're not going to do blindfold puzzles this week. Just got away from me this month. Excuse me. But um. Uh, we already have next month's, uh, book recap planned. It is, uh, we will be recapping simple chess and, uh, Jonathan who writes the abysmal depths of chess blog, which, and he's fairly active on chess Twitter. So those of you on Twitter, um, know him well. Um, he's actually been blogging about simple chess lately, so he's got a, a head start on me, but we're going to go ahead and knock out another one of the sort of. Uh, club players, classics, strategy classics. Um, I mean, I think it, it's useful for a wide range of players, but it's a great book and I am looking forward to discussing that. Uh, we're getting this one out a little, we're getting the November episode out a little towards December and it might be the same month. I'm kind of relaxing the parameters of how often or how quickly I get these out just because it's there a lot of time. But uh, I'm enjoying the project and we're going to keep it rolling. So thanks for everyone for listening. And thanks again to Alex for uh, all of your work. Thank you, Ben. 
Special thanks, as always, to my producer, Matthew Passy, and thanks to those who help continue to spread the word about Perpetual Chess, whether it's via a positive review on a podcast platform or telling a friend or however you choose to do it. You can also engage with the Perpetual Chess community. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at BennyFisher1 or join the Perpetual Facebook group and continue the conversation about the latest interview. For now, the Perpetual Chess Instagram page has gone back into retirement, but someday we will break the blockade and start marching up the board again. Last but not least, you can also email me through the podcast website or directly at ben at perpetualchesspod.com. But more than anything, I would like to express my gratitude to those who provide financial support to Perpetual Chess. Most of all, I want to thank Chessable for sponsoring the show and to everyone who kicks in via PayPal or the Perpetual Chess Patreon page to support this community endeavor and allow me to sustain and continue to improve the show. So without further ado, I would like to give special thanks to the following people and entities. They are Chessable.com. Quality Chess Books, The Capital City Chess Club, The Abysmal Depths of Chess Blog, Adapta Interactive Web Designs and Services, Apprentice Twitch Channel, Andrew Alharji, Andrew Bach, Andy Ryerson, Anidi Deer, Austin Clough, Benjamin Porteau, Bill Sigler, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, The Charlotte Chess Center, The Chess Central's Chess Blog, ChessMood.com, Chris Flanagan, Dan O'Hanlon, Daniel He, Danny Davidson, David Schreiber, Derek Jones, I am Dimitri Schneider, Drake Domingue, I am Eric Rosen, Eric Tam, Ewan Richardson, Faraz Sawaf, Gary Foreman, Glenn Downing, Greg Harfst, I am Greg Shahadi, Gregory Galuk, Guven Manet, James Kennedy, Jens Green, Jeremy Nielsen, John Jernigan, John Rockefeller, John Cromarty, John MacArthur, Kelly Palmer, Kevin O'Callaghan, King Selt, Lucio Casada Silva, the law offices of Stuart Katz, LilaAnalysis.com for cloud-based Lila engine analysis, Michael Can, FM Michael Oblin, Mike Zalazny, Mr. Mike Shahadi, the famous Mr. Dodgy, the Nerdinase Twitch channel, Peter Sodi, Play More Chess Academy of the Hamden Chess Club, Reuven Fisher, Robert Karcher, the Seattle Chess Club, Shane Unger, Stephen Kelty, Stephen Martinez, Thomas Stanix, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryant of StrongChess.com, Todd Kennedy, The Vintage Patsers, which is a Chess.com improver group, Wayne Beam, William Hogarth, and I would also like to thank Aaron Waffler, Ace Viega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, FM Andre Tarakov, Dr. Andrew Perry, Barry Hessian, Bill Juniper, Bill Moran, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brett Howard Lynn, Brian Mullis, Brian Tillis, Bruce Scott, Chad Hilton, Dr. Charles Snodgrass, Chris Wayne Scott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Chris Lott, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Zalecki, aka Chess Explained, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Costa Carras, Courtney Fry, Craig Mallon, Daniel Ginsberg, Daniel Naylor, Dave Saylor, David Bleskacek, David Hamblin, David Cramley of Chessable, David Lazarus of LazManChess.com, Dalen Shelton, Dennis Parrish, Dirk Decker, FM, Donnie Ariel, Not I Am Elect, Drake Domingue, Dwayne Edmonds, Ed Daly, Ethan Smith, Hallelujah Cat, Ian Mason, Hendrick Ryland, Fide Arbiter, Felipe Melo Pereira, Fox Valley Chess Club, Francis Letarte Lavoie, Dr. Frank Tortoris, Frank Zananis, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vandervelde, Gene Stewart, Gerard Barter, Giovanni Russo, Hans Schut, Harash Srinivasan, Jacob Kovac, Jacob Turan, Jacques Pari, James Aspinwall, James Banastia, James Moore, 
Jason Woolham, J. Deep Chakrabarty, Jeff Anderson, Jeffrey Martello, Yep Horland, Jerry Wells, Jim Ratliff, J.J. Trinad, Juan Almagor, Dr. John Fallon, John Fernandez, John Fantaine, John Hartman, John Jeffrey, John McMurtry, Jonathan Slater, Jose Rodriguez, Justin Gardner, Jen Shahadi, Joel Rocky, John Thompson, GM Josh Friedel, I am Kare Christensen, WGM Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, Kevin Pryor, Kior Gata of the Lakeshore Chess Club, I am Kostya Kovutsky, Krishna Gopala Krishnan, Kyle McAvoy, Larry Ryforth, Laura Boyovsky, Macaulay Peterson, Martin Knudsen, Martin Krug, Matthew Passy, Matthew Tedesco, the Mechanics Institute Chess Club of San Francisco, Michael Allard, Michael Hudson, Miguel Araspidi, Mike Clem, Mitchell Fabian, Nate Solon, Neil Bruce, Nigmat Mulajanov, Nicholas Isabel, Olaf Mueller Michaels, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Passy Passanen, Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Randy Temple, Ricky Grahava, uh, Richard Hollenbach, Robert Tichi, Robert Turner, Roy Yearwood, Ryan Berg, the Say Chess YouTube channel, Scott Doherty, Scott McKinnon, Sebastian Finsterwalder, Shane Unger, Stefan Roller, Sven Retiek, WGM Tatia Vabrahamian, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Tom Edsel, Tomas Komanich, Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Vishnu Srikumar, William Brock, William Juniper, William Peterson, FM Zhao Cheng of Chess1000.com, and Zhivko Stoyanov. Thanks for listening, everyone. I will catch you guys next week. Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.